Welcome to the Book Club interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Jay Papazan. He is a best-selling author that serves as vice president and executive editor at Keller Williams Realty International, the world's largest real estate company. He is also vice president of Keller Inc., co-owner of Keller Capital, and co-owner alongside with his wife, Wendy, of Papazan Properties Group with Keller Williams Realty in Austin, Texas. He was born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. After attending the University of Memphis, he spent several years working abroad in Paris before attending New York University's graduate writing program. Upon graduating, he found work at Harper's Collins Publishers, where he helped piece together such best-selling books as Body for Life by Bill Phillips and Go for the Goal by Mia Hamm. The books he's helped craft have collectively sold over 8 million copies. His most recent work with Gary Keller on The One Thing has sold over a million copies worldwide and garnered more than 300 appearances on national bestseller lists, including number one on the Wall Street Journal's hardcover business list. So Jay, without further ado, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. It's always so uncomfortable listening to my own bio. <laughs> I can't even tell you. Yeah. No, I would assume. I, I'm never sure. Like I see some podcasts, I'm like, should I edit that in the background? And it just makes it smooth at the beginning. But no, it's no, quite no, the no, impressive totally resume. Fine. I'm just an yeah. introvert. I don't like to hear my own voice on the answering machine. So I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, it, it just came back from vacation. So how was vacation? Did you get to enjoy uh, it? Much needed. A uh, little unstructured time with family. We were in Italy for two weeks. So nice. I had a lot of that, some reading time, and uh, you know, lots of pasta and red wine. So you know, I'm good right now. <laughs> Living on cloud nine. That's good. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I start with something really basic. First off, the I really love the design of the book, the the feel, the underlining of the words, the simple colors, hand drawn visuals, the door hanger, and then finishing the cover on the backside with a question mark. So how important were all those details that went into the design of the book? Um really fortunate to get to work with kind of a publishing legend. His name's Ray Bard and he runs the Bard press and okay. it's, you know, he's the principal. He's got a guy named Joe that works with him and has for a long time, but it's a real small operation. And essentially he does one book a year. Wow. And so unlike a lot of other publishers where you get a brief window of their attention, we got a lot of his time and he's probably published, um, I don't know, 28, 30, 40, you know, national bestsellers. His track record is almost unparalleled. Like the little red book of selling is another book he did. I mean, mm -hmm. he's done big books and he believes in design. So first off, like one of the first questions he asked me and Gary, you know, he, he was, he bought into the idea. He goes, so when you close your eyes and you picture this book, how big is it? What does it feel like? I mean, he spent a lot of time exploring that. And then we had um, an in-house designer, Caitlin McIntosh, who I think is a design genius. Mm -hmm. And she worked with us. So Gary and I both um, are prone. Anytime we talk, I've got a whiteboard in my office I'm pointing to off screen here. Um, anybody who works with me knows that I won't sit still in the meeting very long, so I get up and start drawing stuff. And Gary does the same thing. I learned that from him. I was a writer, and he taught me to be a visual thinker as well. And so Caitlin took that aspect and then she looked at all of our favorite books and uh, Gary and I tend to write in them and we underline and we kind of turn our books into cliff notes before we're done. And she wanted to bring that aspect. Um, it's called marginalia, right? The stuff that people mm -hmm. write in the margins of books and make that a design element. And it's kind of funny the the underlying passages, like instead of being bold or italics, you know, that's what people do is they underline. We've actually mm -hmm. had people try to return the books because they thought <laughs> someone found it. 
So she almost did her job too well um, yep. with the hand drawn and everything because yeah, yeah. some people have thought that it was actually kind of a mistake. But I think it won 12 design awards and I give all the credit um, you know, to Caitlin for executing that vision. And uh, I guess Gary and I get some credit for the vision and Ray for his patience as we, we just went through <laughs> so many iterations. I do think that when someone picks up a book and you want to make a lasting impression, that how it looks and feels, how heavy it is, that's all part of the equation about whether mm -hmm. someone decides to walk out of a store. I know that most of us buy it on Amazon, and I'm looking at the cover of my book behind you, right? And I remember we put a lot of thought of designing the book cover in thumbnail size. And so we thought a lot, like, what is the customer experience when they first see the book? Um, yeah. Because we know if we want to change people's lives, it starts with them actually picking the book up. And so all the design was meant to make that a better experience for them to ease into the book. So people don't ask me about that very often. I mean, that's kind of geeky stuff inside baseball. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I, you know, if you love books and clearly you do looking behind you, um, design matters. It matters a lot. Definitely. Yeah. No, you hit it out of the park with this one. It just, it, it stuck with me as well. As soon as just the feel of it, like you said, I mean, just holding in your hand, just other books, um, just the paper quality as well. Like you said, the underlining. I, I looked really close the first time I read it. I was like, did, did Jay underline? I was like, oh, <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> no, it's good. Because it helps you, Gee. you know, think through. You're like, oh, you know, maybe this is something that I should take a second look at. Caitlin, like a lot of um, younger people, right? I mean, I say younger, you know, I don't know if she's in her late 20s or early 30s. I don't know, actually. Um, but she's obviously like has mastered Photoshop and all of the electronic tools. Yeah. Um, but we had worked on a project together and I'd asked her to use colored pencils just so that she would spend less time perfecting and more time iterating. And mm -hmm. she brought that, like every line in there is hand drawn. She rendered it eventually, but she really wanted the authenticity of that feel. And, uh, I don't know. I think she's super gifted. I was, it was a privilege. Definitely. Sorry about that. You're all choked up thinking about yeah, the design. I'm all choked up. Yeah. <laughs> You're making me tear up, Jay. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. I mean, even the even the red, just the, the the subtle color that right there is just just it sets you apart. And I think that's it really came across. Cool. Uh, yeah. I love hearing that. And uh, at the time that we wrote it, there weren't a lot of white books. Like essentialism came out mm -hmm. later, and now you see that you know publishing i've been in the business a long time it goes through trends like i'm looking on your bookshelf i can see the four-hour work week and it's right above never eat alone and i can remember there was a neon period right where oranges and you know that went away for a while and then you've got mark manson's book the subtle art of not you know i won't yep. say it i don't know if this is pg <laughs> or rated r interview a massive bestseller went back to that orange so it goes through cycles yeah. and uh you know, I'd like to be a student of the game that I've decided to cast my lot. My one thing is books. And I love going to the bookstore and geeking out. That's awesome. That's great. Well, I, I want to dive into the outline before we get into the chapters. So sure. the, book, uh, the book starts with three chapters and then you break it up into three parts after that. So the lies, the truth and extraordinary results. Then the book concludes with chapter 18, the journey. So moving right into chapter one. So did the one thing idea really come from the movie City Slickers? No, no, <laughs> not at all. Okay. Um, but so many people reference that scene with Curly, you know, yeah, that yep. we had to we had to give it a nod. And I'm happy we did. 
yeah. there was a moment where I was like, no, that's not where it's from. I was actually getting frustrated. <laughs> but then um, I got past that and just thought, you yeah. know what? That's actually a, n- a wonderful touchstone. And it, it perfectly aligns with the book. Definitely. So the book actually came up. Um, I was working on a course for I was running our university at Keller Williams at that time. I delivered a course for Gary uh, that he wanted to review before we put out in the world. And he asked to take it home and he wanted to write an introduction. He wanted to just kind of spice it up a little bit. And he came back with a little essay called The Power of One. And at that time, you know, for business, the number one thing we preach it in all of our other books, too, is lead generation. Right. If you don't have customers, it doesn't matter how good your service is. And um, it all advocated, you know, for realtors to spend more time generating customers so that they had a business. And I remember the principles weren't about real estate at all. And I sat down with him. I said, Gary, this is a book. He goes, man, I thought the same thing. And so that would have been 2008, probably. And we spent about four and a half years uh, after we launched the project working on the book. And in all truth, writing a book about focus, we got distracted about halfway through (laughs) it. The market economy collapsed, as you know, Mm -hmm. and we had to write a book that was the one thing for our company then called Shift. It was about how to survive a shifted market. And that was like a six month distraction. We just hammered that out and then went back to this book. But it, it was really I was living this book as a guinea pig studying mm-hmm. Gary for a good four and a half years. But that's the origin story. It was an essay that sparked a conversation and we got real excited because I look at this book and it's definitely a lot of research. We didn't want it to be Gary's big ideas, mm-hmm. but he lives this stuff. This is all very internal to him. And even though not every hypothesis we started with proved to be worth putting in the book, like this is how I do it, just research back this up. Or we had another researcher who was supposed to disprove it, right? So we wouldn't get caught in the, the confirmation bias. And um, by and large, most of what he did naturally and had studied and modeled ended up being kind of a best practice and supported by research. And I love that because it's it means he's already in alignment with the book. He does not a pretender. Mm-hmm. Like he lives this stuff. Of course. No, that's great. Now, is it... How tricky was it to pause? Did, were you really involved in writing this book, and, and then all of a sudden, you know, we weren't did you... writing the manuscript yet. We had an outline. Okay. Uh, we had two full-time researchers that were piling up just huge binders of research, mm-hmm. and so we were in the mad scientist phase, okay, where we were putting things together and assembling them. And the truth is, I mean, that was the worst recession since the Great Depression. Um, we had a duty to the people who. Uh, We've kind of said that we're there to support them. So like we've all agreed it's like, okay, our one thing has changed, which is something mm-hmm. that, you know, you have to learn to do. And we made the appropriate change. It wasn't fun, but it was the right thing to do. And then we got back to what we wanted to do. Okay. Good to know. You know it's kind of a moment of eat your piece first and then you can have your dessert. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the the first chapter also talks about going small. So what does it mean to, to go small and and, and focus you know from a larger standpoint and really nail down the one thing well i think we've said think big a lot in our books right Mm -hmm. that's a hallmark of my 18 years with gary is that every year he's made me think bigger and that's the biggest that's the the reason i'm still here is every time i think i'm thinking big he shows me a bigger picture and i'm like ah you know i thought i'd made it (laughs) no and um that's a wonderful thing to be able to do but i think most entrepreneurs when they have a big vision, 
they go into massive action mode and they think they have to act big. And so we wanted to make that point pretty early. And I can't tell you how often it comes up when we're training and coaching. Um, you know, you know, the domino metaphor will get to it, but essentially, you know, we say, what's the smallest domino we can knock over right now? What's the, the smallest meaningful act we can take that represents real progress and focus on building momentum versus trying to get it all done at once. And I think the trap, right? So act small is of taking a moment to aim before you fire. And among entrepreneurs, you know, and business owners, that's kind of our first audience for the book. Um, that's a problem, right? They have all that pent up energy. When they see the vision, they're a thousand miles an hour and that's a wonderful attribute. They take action. We just want it to be more focused. So, you know, a focused act is far more powerful than you doing a whole bunch of stuff. Great. Now, moving on to the dominoes, chapter two. So it discusses, you know, how one domino um, represents a potential energy. So a single yeah. domino is capable of bringing down another domino that is actually 50% larger. So what do the dominoes represent? I know we touched on it quickly, but, you know, sure. doing that next thing. So um, when we were talking about this book at Book Expo, it, it, the New York booksellers and all the people in publishing, like they would just laugh. It's like one thing, it's never just one thing, right? And because we live in a really busy time and I don't know of anybody who has one thing on their job description, not me, not Gary, right? So we had to acknowledge that we all have a lot of priorities and they're competing for our attention. So the goal of you know focusing on that small act is if you, when you line up dominoes, right? And you get them in the right order, if you knock over the first one, what happens? It moves over. Right. Falls. They all yep. can fall over. And so the idea here is we're acknowledging the fact that there's a lot of stuff that may have to be done. But if you knock out the real priority first, it makes all of those other things either go away or it can make them a lot easier. So that little pause, right, that aiming, that focusing, like what's the, the most leveraged act I can take? So the domino metaphor was about that. And it was kind of a happy accident. I remember it was Kyla. She was our second researcher. Um, and she had found an obscure article in the American Journal of Physics from 1982. A guy named Lauren Whitehead wrote this paper about how a two-inch domino can knock over a three-inch domino, can knock over a four-and-a-half-inch domino, and so on. And um, it just kind of blew our minds. And I loved it because when you take that out to its extreme, you know, we graphed it out in the book, you know, just 54 dominoes into it, it would knock over a domino that would reach from the Earth to the moon. And it's staggering when you kind of think about something that small can build up so much power and momentum in such a relatively short span of time. But in our experience, and, and I've made it a career, and Gary has done it at a far greater level than I, of studying business and success. And when you really look at under the hood at the most successful people, they weren't overnight successes. There was a succession, right, of steps and milestones along the way. And they were surprised as much as anybody else at how fast it grew. But you usually can go farther back than most people think to see where it really starts. And so that line of dominoes, and we tell that to people because you start down a diet or whatever, and it feels like you're not making progress. You're just knocking down those small dominoes. You gotta have faith that you're aiming at the right things and let that success kick in. Because when it does, it usually will kind of blow your mind. Um, the, the success when it happens, happens fast enough, there's lessons to be learned from that too. Like how do I deal with it when they're getting so big so fast? 
Great. Chapter three talks about success leaving clues and how no one is self-made. So right. who is your Roy to Walt Disney or L.S. Robson to Sam Walton or Max Talmud to Albert Einstein? Those are the three examples in the book. So was there anybody in your life that, you know, gave you that little bump when you were a child or, you know, a teenager to, to make oh. you who you are today? It's it, There's a bunch of them, right? And I, I do think that we were um, – there's, this is one of the chapters that I love, but it also is like it's hard to sometimes fit in with the message uh, because it's talking about um, you're not going to anything that extraordinary that you're going to do. You're probably not going to do it alone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who is your partner in crime? Um, and at different times in the journey, I've had different people. You know, I can think about uh, Justin Cronin, who's now like this amazing author who wrote like the, the vampire trilogy that sold millions of copies. Right. And it's like a literary version, not Twilight. He yeah. was like one of my first writing professors. And I remember him um, not liking any of my stuff, but then liking one of my stories. And that was like a really big turning point for me. I was like, wow, that like it encouraged me because he was I could, before he was famous. I knew he was talented. And for him to even give me a small endorsement and I can go through, you know, David Hershey, who I worked on books with Harper Collins. Um, he introduced me like at different stages as different people. But the two outside of my parents and family, right? Mm-hmm. My wife and Gary Keller are probably the two biggest influences along the way. I got, you know, you're on the eve of getting married, right? So we talked about this before you hit record. Um, that was the most important decision I ever made for my life. And I've now lived um, almost as, you know, I'm getting in about five years, I'll live as much of my life with my wife as I lived before I met her. And that's a long relationship that has a massive impact on where you go and you have to evolve together. So, you know, yay, I got it right. Um, I have the right one. And we invested in all the hard work to make it work. But most long-term partnerships are like that. And I can tell you that Gary and I um, have had our old married couple days where we argue and bicker. Um, When you're in the trenches writing books together and fighting over the best idea, that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a lot of respect there. And he's the most important business mentor and often ways life mentor that I've ever had. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good to know and to look up and acknowledge that those people are out there. They are always there. Mm-hmm. You just sometimes have to acknowledge it. That's great. I, the one thing that stuck out right there in that conversation was respect. And I hear that's, I've been reading other books, you know, because I, I know marriage is going to be work, but I want to be successful, like, you know, in other areas in life. And, I hear, you know, respect is that one thing. So is that that true, you know, for your marriage as well, that you, you have that mutual respect? I, I think the science supports it. I mean, okay. I remember reading, uh, was it Malcolm Gladwell's Blink? There's the chapter about the professors who are studying facial expressions. And I just remember them, like, if they smiled a lot, they were happier. And if they frowned a lot, they had headaches and were sick. But there was like a little throwaway and where he talked about micro expressions and I might be mixing up my author. So I'm just going to credit Gladwell cause he rocks anyway. But, um, this person could see when a couple was talking to each other, they recorded them in high definition. And when one person would be saying something, the other person's expressions would reflect whether they respected that person or not. Right. The, the, the role of the eyes, right. Even on a micro level, you could not perceive it without the, uh, he said that he could predict whether they were get divorced or not with like 97% accuracy. Wow. And I just remember going, wow, that's about respect. 
And um, one of my moments of truth on my journey, right, was I was asked to write a book on commercial real estate. Um, I argued against it. The market was too small. I could go into the story. But basically, Mm -hmm. I remember going home, you know, bitching about it to my wife and saying, you know what, I'm going to work with this other guy. He's an expert and I'm just going to help him write his book and it'll be fine. And she looked at me and she said, hey, you know, you tell your wife and kids that you're an author, that that's your one thing. And it sounds a lot like you're about to mail it in. And it was like punch right in the breadbasket. You know, I, I loved her and hated her in that moment for calling <laughs> me out. Yeah. And I had to realize that that what was more important to me than writing best-selling books is I, I love to impact readers, right? Hmm. I like, and I measure that success with how many copies sell. There's, it's not about the money. You talk to any author, that's not, there's not tons of money in this game. It's about the impact. But I realized that as, as much as I got fulfillment from that, if I wasn't always earning my wife's respect, I was lost. And that became a compass for me. And so when we talk about my personal one thing, now this is way out in the book, right? When we talk yeah, about yeah. purpose, my very corny phrase that I write at the top of my goal sheet, and there's no way that you could read it this small, but it says, to be the best husband and father I can be, and family impact abundance. And um, what I realized that whatever I'm doing, if it doesn't align with those two things, if I can't be a role model and be a good example for my kids, if it's not earning my wife's respect, I'm probably not doing the right thing. And that kind of clarity, right, allows you to say yes to stuff that matters and no to everything else. And that's unique to everyone. But I do think, going back to marriage, make sure you respect each other, and that's an ongoing thing, right? That's not just a one-time, hey, we're getting married, I'll respect you. That's got to be earned, right, on a daily basis. Um, And that's the work of the marriage. It's amazing. I humbled in you. I'm no marriage expert, but... (laughs) I know. That's good. Well, that's the next book, right? <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Someday. When, yeah. I, when we're celebrating our 50th anniversary, you know, I'm heading towards our 20th, which is pretty good. That's awesome. But, yep. you know, I think I need to get a little bit more uh, objective evidence that I'm qualified to write that book first. Nothing says it like the 50. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so part one of the book, um, starting with chapter four, so the lies that mislead and derail us. Um, and you go into talking about creating, you know, a to-do list versus a success list. So how do we differentiate from the two? Well, I guess before we go into each of these chapters, because I can go, we'll hit these as, as fast as we can. The lies is there mm-hmm. for a reason. Um, a pattern in our books, and I know that you've read some of our other ones, or at least you have them. I'm looking at your bookshelf again. Um, it's funny how I can pick my books out of a giant stack. <laughs> That's just, it's kind of like seeing your kids in a crowd. I don't know. Um <laughs> One of the things that Gary taught me is like, before we put the good ideas in, sometimes we have to get the bad stuff out. And so we usually start with, you know, before I tell you how to think, let's make sure you're not thinking in the wrong ways. So the lies is kind of a section where we identify what are all the things that we tell ourselves or the world tells us that's actually getting in the way that Mm -hmm. sounds an awful lot like the truth and or has some facts in it that also is misleading and so we kind of identified six and the first one that you're alluding to was everything doesn't matter equally and i think that while people don't argue that outright when you're really busy all the time um, and you're reacting to your world and you're not making the good hard choices you're kind of treating everything like it's equal i mean i know on my worst days i look at my to-do list and there is usually always one or two things that matter more. 
But some mm-hmm. days I just want to make the list shorter. I just want to power through it, right? Because it psychologically makes me feel better to be shorter. That mm-hmm. is violating this principle. A success list, right, is where you take your to-do list and say, of all the stuff that I could be doing right now, mm-hmm. right, what are the things that actually matter? And there's usually a subset, maybe 20% of that list that actually matters in the big sense, right? Mm-hmm. And then they may be necessary. Like I have to return a call to a customer. I have to do that. But that's not going to move the dial in a year, right? That's just a thing that I got to do. And then of those small list of things, if I only got one done, what would that one be? What would be the most impactful thing? And that becomes number one. And if you had time to do two, what would number two be? Usually you can go from a list of 25 to five in about three minutes. Most of us know what the priorities are, but we don't stop to identify them so that we're really clear like, okay, I would much rather just make this list shorter, but I really need to spend an hour writing or I really need to finish this book instead of watching the hockey game or whatever it is, right? You have to do that little assessment And it's amazing how a very brief amount of reflection gives you clarity. Um, So just taking that moment, take a pause, as they say, um, take a beat, and you can quickly identify the priority. And that's what we call a success list, right? It's a Mm -hmm. a to-do list with prioritization. Prioritization. And do you actually number them out, you know, one, two, three, four, five? Um, It's a joke. I mean, I'm an English major, right? So I used to give Gary documents that had uh, bullet points on them. And he would just very politely go, this is nice. Um, would you take just a moment and number this list for me? I want to be clear what's number one. And it's like a running gag now. If someone gives somebody a bullet list, yeah, people will start to snicker because they know what's coming, right? <laughs> yeah. And I do it even to my partner, Jeff, who hosts our podcast. The one thing I was like, he'll forget sometimes, right? He's only been here two years and the world doesn't think this way. Mm. I'll be great. This is a great list. What's number one? He's like, ah. Oh, it's like, yeah, number the list, dude. Number the list. I want to know what number one is. Because if it's really number one, that's where we have to start. And we shouldn't talk about number two at all until we're done with that. And that's just like, woe is anybody in a meeting with Gary who's number three on the list. You're not getting there, man. I'm sorry. Yep. If we get to number two, it's a good day. But he's going to give all of his time and energy to what he perceives or the team tells him is the real priority. Because everything else is a little bit of nonsense to him. Yeah, I love that clarity. And that and that's a good sign of a teacher, you, you know, like that guiding question. What's number one? Yeah. yeah, that's number one. Yeah, it's great. You can internalize it with some practice. But yeah. on my own, you know, goal sheet that I mean, this is very low tech. I'm an analog guy. I've learned a lot of stuff. I've got all of my annual goals numbered. I've got all my monthly goals numbered, all my weekly goals numbered. And when I'm crossing off stuff at the bottom of the list, it's a sure sign that I'm violating the principles, right? So it, it just keeps you honest. Yeah, well, that's good. Now, you talk about uh, Pareto's 80-20 principle in the book and taking it to extreme. So yeah. how do we find the 80% and how do we take that to the extreme? Well, it's the process we just talked about, right? So yeah. Pareto's principle says that the majority of what you want comes from the minority of what you do. And mm-hmm. bizarrely enough, that ratio of 80-20 shows up a lot. Roughly 20% of what we're doing gives us 80% of what we want. And the converse of that is true, right? It takes 80% of your effort to get that last 20%. So with 20% of effort, you can get the first 80% of your results. And then it takes so much more effort to get to that finish line. So why wouldn't you always start with the 20%? And our point, extreme Pareto is, if you have a list of five things, 
keep taking the 20%, right? What's the 20% mm -hmm. of this, right? Until you get to one. Because it, it's, as cool as it is to be working on your 20%, and that's language that for 19 years I've used in this office, and it's shorthand. Hey, what are the big rocks? What's the 20%, right? What's, what's important here? You can still take it a step further. What's the, the primo? What's the number one thing here? Because let's really give that our attention. Got it. Now, part two, the truth, the simple path to productivity. So I just want to okay. read this quote from page 100 because it brought peace to my life when I read it. I remember reading it clear as day, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning, sitting at my desk, and I was just like, I, it just felt like this calm come over me. So oh, cool. All right. <laughs> So here it is. Uh, I discovered that we can't manage time and that the key to success isn't in all the things we do, but in the handful of things we do well. I learned that success comes down to this, being appropriate in the moments of your life. If you can honestly say, this is where I'm meant to be right now, doing exactly what I'm doing, and then all the amazing possibilities of your life become possible. Mm. That right there. That's good, isn't it? That's, that's all Gary right there, man. I wish I could take credit for that line, but that's yep. his and it's truth. Um, so the the truth and it's how do we figure out what our one thing is in any given moment, mm -hmm. right? Um, if we're trying to be appropriate in the moments that matter, right? Mm -hmm. If you're with your children, right? Should you really be on your phone or should you be reading the book to your kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's so easy to get distracted today. Um, the tool that's at the heart of the book is the focusing question. Um, and it's a, it's a tool that Gary's been using for 30 some years. Um, I can remember, uh, that first meeting I had with Gary, I ran into him in a bathroom and said, I hear you're writing a book. That's how we started writing. Really? <laughs> um, he invited me into his office cause he was between coaching calls and one day a month, sometimes two days a month, he would pause being the founder of the company and talk directly to our top customers for 30 minutes at a time all day long, just to be really connected to our power users, you know, in any other system. And coaching people, do you have a coach by any chance? A few here and there. Okay, so in today, like the modern coaching call, if you're a business coach, one of the things that happens is you, you have your call and at the end of it, your coachee has to agree what they're gonna accomplish between now and the next meeting. And so Gary would say, great, what are you gonna accomplish between now and next week, Scott? And you might list out the three or four priorities that y'all had identified. Great. Well, over time, Gary noticed that people would do some of them, but often would miss the number one thing. And their excuse was, well, I did these 10 things. And he's like, but you didn't do the most important thing. And it, it actually happened by frustration that he finally asked, well, look, eliminating everything, if you could only get one thing done this week to really move the needle, what's the one thing that you're going to get done? And his discovery, and this was kind of a happy accident, right? It was kind of mm -hmm. an anger and frustration that he went there. Just to narrow it down to just, there's no chance of misunderstanding. You're gonna get one thing done. Um, everybody did it, because it's a yes or no question now. There's no place to hide. When you only have one thing at the top of your list, and that's the only thing on your list, it's kind of its own built-in accountability. Mm -hmm. But what surprised him is when people did number one, they did two through six too. Really? And he's like, oh, so if I want them to do one through six, I just need to focus on doing number one. And so kind of the truth, the heart of the book is it's a simple tool. And honestly, it could have been the first thing we said, but I think people wouldn't have believed us. You know, we had to write about yeah. the and all the scientific research to build a little bit of credibility. <laughs> um, but it's 
It's what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. That's a mouthful, right? Mm. Um, but that's the one thing. If someone closed this book, whether it be the full version or shorthand, what's my one thing? We mm. want them to start asking that question. That's why the back of the book has the question mark, right? Instead of testimonials and all that stuff, that was our number one outcome from the book is to get people to ask that question. Because we found that that was the focusing question. That was the thing that clarified. Now I know what my priority is. And when people know it, they're so much better at acting on it, right? It's yeah. not hidden anymore. Um, they, they now have to consciously avoid doing it versus just missing it. And so, you know, it's, it's what's the one thing, not two or three, right? So it's immediately asking your brain for your real priority. And in my experience, 98% of the time people know it and they just feel guilty for not doing it. Just, they're just too busy, right? They're not asking yeah. the question. Um, it's what can I do, right? What I can do, not could, should, or would, because those are all future references. It's what you can do right now. That's where the feedback loop. Mm -hmm. And then the such by doing it, everything else is easier or necessary. That's about that domino run. Yeah. It's got to have the 80-20 built into it. What's the most leveraged act I can currently take that will get me closer to my objectives? And even though it is a mouthful, when people ask it, you know, a powerful question yields better answers. So I've internalized it. The people on our team have internalized it. It doesn't take that long, but you ask that question and you do get clarity so you can be appropriate in those moments and be present and not feel the strain and the pull of all the other stuff that isn't being done. And that, that's a battle, right? If you're doing mm -hmm. your one thing, it doesn't mean that those things are, you know, you're not aware of them completely. But at least now you know that I know that they still have to get done, but I know that I'm doing the most important thing. And that is a kind of solace in itself. Yeah. And it, just to touch on that, what you said earlier, I'm so glad you didn't put it in the beginning of the book because <laughs> you, you felt it. You felt it come and there was something like, what's it going to be? You know, you, it's it's coming. And as soon as it hit you, you really bought into it because you built yeah, that yeah. foundation before. So. Kudos to you on that. <laughs> we, we did try to build the book along the principles of it, right? Because when yeah. we turned in the manuscript, it's 230 pages now. It was 440 pages when we had the first manuscript. And our publisher, like he's a great guy, Ray, he's like, you know, guys, when someone buys a book called The One Thing, they don't expect a doorstop. So let's start <laughs> asking the question about everything that's in here and make sure that it's really essential. And we cut a lot of stuff that we call it darlings, right? You murder your yeah. darlings, as writers would say. There was a lot of tough cuts from the book, but it's a, I think it's better for it. Yeah, no, that's good. Now, he, here's a tricky question. So what was your first answer when you asked yourself the focusing question? If you can remember way back when, you know, first time meeting Gary, because it sounded like he already had that built in for 30 years or so, he said. Yeah, he was he's been working from priority for a very long time and now he's okay. been consciously doing it with the systems he's built over time. Mm -hmm. So I first started reporting to Gary in the summer of 2002 and before there was this book, um, this document that I showed you, right? This is 2002. Remember you had Excel, but you didn't have it on your phone. Um, we had a paper form and it was called a 411 and it's on our website. We talk about it briefly in the book, but I had to provide for him at the very top. Here are my annual goals, and they were prioritized. And then every month, I would ask the question, based on my annual goals, what do I have to accomplish this month? And put those down in priority. And then every week, you ask the question, 
based on where I want to be this month, right, which is based on where I want to be this year, what do I have to accomplish this week? And those are listed in priority. And so for, what would that be, 16 years Mm -hmm. every week, I've been doing that exercise and delivering that to him. For the last few years, we've now got it down to a monthly rhythm, but I literally just gave him my June 411 this weekend. But it's lots and lots of repetition. I could go back. I know I have the document and see what was on there, but um, I know that it probably had to do with writing because my career with him was a transition from having been an editor and worked in book publishing. Our relationship started with writing our first book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, so I can almost guarantee you my annual, weekly, all of that, it was a writing goal. Like, how can I write for two or three hours every day? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it's distilled to over time. I still try to achieve that. How do I get a couple of hours at least of writing in on average every day? Because if I'm doing that over time, those dominoes fall down and another book comes out. Great. Now, when you said you gave him the 411, now are you accountability partners or is that something that you continue to strive for? That's just how we built, uh, Gary's structured the company here, uh, okay. that you have people who are your accountability partners. That's the, really what the manager's job is. Yeah. And we get to self-regulate a little bit. You know, there's stuff that we have to do because it's the job. Mm-hmm. But instead of waiting for an annual review every week, I sit down with my staff and I look at their 411s and it's a way for making sure that we're all still in alignment. Okay. It's a quick meeting, right? What's your yeah. number one thing for the week? And where can I support you? And over time, they start putting their personal goals. I'm working on a marathon or I'm trying to lose weight. And in my experience, like people, that personal stuff, when you can start adding their personal priorities here, you know, people generally, by and large, get treated fairly at work. They get mm-hmm. what they deserve. If they're up for a promotion, it may not happen the first time, but they will get it or they'll go somewhere where they'll get it. What happens and why people leave is the stuff in their personal life is being unattended to. So as a manager, you know, in our, the way we treat it, like, cause it's not a business plan. It's not 20 pages. It's one page, hmm. you know, are we on the same page together or not? We get to ask that question. Me and Gary now have got a rhythm. We just do it once a month, but with my staff, I'm, I'm doing it with them every week and it's a great way to stay in tune and it's a great way to give people feedback instead of loading up and trying to remember what they did in January or something. It, that, yeah. I, I've lived in that world before and it just seems ridiculous now. Great clarity as a team. Now, part three, extraordinary results, unlocking the possibilities within you. So okay. you start out with the iceberg formula of purpose, priority, and productivity. So why is it important to start with you know, our purpose? I know you mentioned it earlier, um, You know your why that you told us. Um. I think underlying everything, you know, we call it a big why. Uh, some people will call it your internal intrinsic motivation. There's usually something behind a lot of the exterior goals we have. Mm-hmm. And companies, right, a lot of the most successful ones are very clear what their mission is. And it's not, you know, it, some of the corny stuff that all the customers write, or there's some of that stuff is really corny and it's meant and it's, it feels manufactured. But I mean, Southwest Airlines, um, it's morphed over time, but I, my memory was they were always the low cost airline and that's why they had the cattle call. And that's why you just got peanuts and drinks. Right. But they delivered on what they did and they had to come up with other ways, you know, the basically comedians, you know, that are the flight attendants. 
they played with that thing a lot. And that's why they worked in the hubs they worked in and had all the same planes. And they're like the most profitable airline out there. And, you know, now they would say they're in the freedom business. Um, but I think that their start, they, they were very clear. What's the presiding principle up here, right? Um, you know, physician is do no harm, but hopefully they got in the business for something beyond that. So we feel it's important to explore that foundation mm-hmm. and identify it. Cause when you know what you're really here for, then it really makes it easy to identify the priority. Because people, you think about it, a man on a mission is a statement. What does that person look like when they're walking around the office? Right? If your boss, Stephanie, is on a mission, how does she behave during the day? She's highly focused, right? Her head's down. She's not distractible. Those are people who are bent on a course. They know their destination. And because they know their destination, they know what the next step should be. And so for us, like when you, this whole book is about prioritization, right? The foundation of that is purpose. Why are we doing this thing? What is the outcome that we ultimately want? It's a very big picture kind of what's my one thing question. And that's the husband father for me, mm. right? It's a bigger thing and it doesn't have a finish line because how can I ever be the best I can be? That's a continuous journey, right? So it's a big question. Um, it's something you're striving for that gives you direction. That's that's kind of why we put it there. Doesn't always get talked about, but when it shows up in interviews, you'll remember those moments where, oh, that's why he's doing that, or that's why she mm. did that, right? That's that super deep, you know, I was homeless as a child, whatever. You're like, oh, that's why they're doing this thing. I mean, was it Elon Musk? Like, all of the stuff he's doing is because he's convinced that humanity needs another home. I'm like, that's kind of cool, right? <laughs> So it's not just because you want to go to Mars and live in Star Trek. Like you think that you're on a mission to save humanity. Mm. You know, do you think he says no to Facebook every day for that? Probably. Right. Oh, let's see. Save humanity or like someone's post. (laughs) I don't know. Right. So it gives you great clarity and it doesn't have to be save humanity. It can be like I said, mine's kind of corny, but that's what I know gets me galvanized to take action because it gets really close to what's important to me. Great. So start with our purpose and then we move over to priority. So that's setting goals to now. So you start with the someday, five year, one year, one month, one week, one day to right now. So moving over to productivity, which is the last stage and you call it the productivity power tool, time blocking. So how can we use our yes. calendar to support our one thing? Well, I'm, I'm just going to pause really quickly on priority only because okay. the goal setting to the now, the essence of that is and it's funny, like after we put that section in there, I could identify so many times that Gary had done it and I witnessed it, but we didn't have a process for explaining it. Um, and I listened to interviews with Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and these people who are incredibly achievement oriented, whether they be mountain climbers or business people or violinists. And there is this natural thing that's happening where they are, when you say begin with the end in mind, you can actually put a process around that. And working backwards from a goal is far more efficient in terms of finding the priority than saying, based on saving humanity, what can I do today? But if you work backwards, where would we need to be in five years? And based on that, where do we need to be in a year? It narrows your choices. I liken it to if you've ever you know, been to Shoney's Big Boy and they give you the little you know, children's maze, here's a trick. Work it backwards. There's almost no wrong turns when you go backwards through the maze. And that's that, that weird trick of 
pretending like you're in the future and asking what were the big milestones that led me here, it just narrows. So that's one of the fundamental things we talk about there. You alluded to it, but I, if people didn't know what five year, one year meant, that's what we mean is you're working backwards to your current priority. Okay. So time blocking with apologies for that little intermission. No, um, no I went right through it. So <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. You're managing the clock too for us. And I appreciate that. <laughs> Um, time blocking is really simple. It's, it's making appointments with yourself to do your most important work. We all set calendar appointments, but most people set appointments to meet other people. Hey, when's the party? Send me an invite. What time is the meeting? Send me an invite. Really successful people look at their calendars and the first thing they put on there is, hey, I've got some work to do to save humanity this week, or I've got some work to do to write my book this week. Um, I'm going to go ahead and block that on my calendar. And so by putting that appointment on your calendar, it gives you a really wonderful excuse to say no. It's a simple script, right? If I block my writing time from 8 to 12 every day and someone says, hey, can we meet for lunch at, at 1130? Hey, I'm sorry. I've already got another appointment at that time. Can we meet at 1230? Nobody asks you unless they're a complete a-hole, like, well, what are you doing, <laughs> Right. Right. You just say, I've got an appointment. It happens to be with yourself. Don't let on that it's with anyone else, but it provides real pr protection. And there's a benefit that happened after we wrote the book. We added it to recent editions. But psychologists have shown like that simple act of navigating your time makes you about three times more likely to go do something. The simple act of setting the intention on this day, I will work out for 20 minutes at this place. Right, that act of navigating your time makes you three times more likely to do it. And that's stunning. So yeah. it's super simple. It's not complicated. Um, but a lot of people don't do it. And so you have to kind of say, if I'm really going to write the great American novel, it starts with when am I going to do that? And making that commitment. And we generally, more than likely, will follow those commitments if we can get them on paper or on your Outlook calendar or however you do it. Great. Now, let's say something pops up and, you, you know, you're working in the week. Do you, you know, take a, a step back and reflect and, and see how you can fit, you know, that time back in? Sure. Um, we have a rule. If you're erased, you must replace. Mm -hmm. So um, this is not for everything. You don't time block everything in your world. You time block your big priorities, right? Date night okay. with your wife, um, time with your kids, their soccer games, their birthdays. Those things go on the calendar and work has to move around them. Right. Hey, I've already got a commitment that day. Could we do it the day before the day after? If you don't have it on your calendar, now you're calling people up going, hey, I screwed up. That's actually my son's soccer game. Can we reschedule? Mm -hmm. And some people just won't do that. They'll go ahead and miss the other obligation. So if you take a writing day, like I have a commitment to do writing day and I get stolen because my kid's sick. Well, that's a higher priority. My mm -hmm. kid's sick. I'm going to stay home with my kid. Well, I'm going to go out on my calendar and I'm going to find another two hours and I'm going to add that as writing time. That's how you stay on track. And I may have to cancel time with other people. And I can, I've seen Gary do this so many times where he literally will clear months of his calendar. You just wow. get that dreaded call from his EA and it's like, hey, that meeting is not happening anymore. And you're like, okay, priorities have shifted. And but that's what it looks like. And in my experience, when people cancel meetings with me, um, I usually feel relief. It's like, oh, I got that time back. So I think people really worry a lot about that. If your priorities have changed and you have to cancel and reschedule, unless it's their birthday party or their anniversary party, you know, or their wedding, 
it's probably going to be a gift to them to give them that time back as long as they believe you and you say we will reschedule. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to protect the time. And if it has to get your priorities change, but that priority that you violated is really still there, you just got to find that time and put it back on your calendar. I love that tip, replacing it. I'm going to write that down and remember if that If you erase, one. you must replace. I mean, I, that's, <laughs> that comes from the age of the paper calendar, but you get the principle. It's perfect. Now, um, I have a last few questions before we wrap up the interview. So, sure. Do you ever find yourself chasing two rabbits today? And if so, do you revisit the one thing to keep it fresh in your mind? Um, all the time. You yeah. know, it's easy because I'm one of the co-authors. People call me out if I'm multitasking, right? I mean, <laughs> um, if my attention's divided and I know it, I might start signaling defensive postures and then go, ah, it's because I violated the book. Yeah. I mean, everybody's human. Um, we all do it. Right now, you know, my partner, Jeff, just hired a new hire. Um, and when you're a small business and you're bringing a new person on, um, it's incredibly, you know, disruptive. And I, I just mm. talked to him. It's like, hey, for the first 90 days or so, you got two one things. You know, who you're in business with matters. So investing in that relationship, you're going to be strained. So you got your job. You've got this new employee, which is going to be a big thing. So you probably want to start minimizing some of the other stuff that you're doing. Start saying no around it because you just double down and it doesn't last forever. And people can't do that forever. You can't have two big priorities all the time. Hmm. But for short periods of time, we get unbalanced and then we have to rebalance. So it happens. Um, I, I have a coach. I've been in coaching for years and years. I send him my 411. I send it to Gary too, but I pay someone. And their job is to look for those conflicts with me so that I'm not unconsciously justifying something yeah. that I shouldn't be. And yeah. that's a good accountability partner. They just, all they're doing is reflecting reality back to me. So you say this, Jay, but it looks like you're doing this. I'm like, True. <laughs> so let's, how do we fix that? Great. I'll get on that. And cause everybody slips up cause the world's crazy, right? Yeah. You've got, I've got aging parents. I've got young kids. I've got a marriage. I've got my health got my job we all have that list of stuff and it feels very important how do you keep all those plates spinning there are going to be times where your priorities get a little jumbled so yeah. if you're just i check in every week and every two weeks i check in with an accountability partner hmm. and that's one of the ways i i think i've been able to live the book more or less consistently well that's good i think it's important to hear from you know someone you know who's actually written the book to you know hey life happens but you know, here's how I'm I'm managing. Someone's to... pretending otherwise. I can tell you right now, they're just a liar or they're deluded. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, I just don't see that. Even people, yeah. people imagine that when you're Gary Keller and you're a self-made billionaire or whatever, that you have assistants that do all the other stuff. I mean, he's got a kid. He's. I mean, it, it, life happens to him too. Yeah. And if anything, you can get to a place where it's easier, and then the responsibilities, right, of having mm. all of that. Now there's people's, hundreds of people whose jobs rely on you doing your job. I think the pressure actually goes up. It might yeah. get easier. Yeah, you got an assistant, you got a corner office or whatever that looks like for you. And it does get a little bit easier. You have someone you can delegate the small stuff to. But then you also look up and you're like, wow, I've got a whole department or a team that if I'm not doing my one thing, I might not be the only one to lose their job. And I think that, so mm -hmm. 
easier is relative. I mean, I just remember yeah. telling my, my parents being truthful with me when my kids just emerged from the terrible twos, which is actually like two to four in my memory. <laughs> and I said, does it get easier? And they said, no, it just changes. Hmm. But it's never less joy. But, yeah. you know, a two-year-old in diapers is different than a 16-year-old with car keys, but it's still challenging. Yeah. Wise advice from the parents. <laughs> I'm, I'm midstream. I've got a 13 year, a 12 year old, and a 14 year old. My son turned 14 today, so I just about got it mixed oh, up. Oh, good. Yeah. So he's getting out of uh, middle school this year, going to high school, I'm assuming. Yeah. 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 Big changes are happening. Yep. That's good, though. <laughs> um, so you mentioned it real quick. So, what are some useful ways to say no until our one thing is done, besides using the door hanger in the back of the book, of course? <laughs> uh, love that you mentioned that. Um, I think when most people ask you to do stuff, right? For most people, the challenge is someone uh, saying no to people. They don't want to disappoint people, um, and or they don't feel empowered to say no. Mm. And so I like to say yes, but on my terms. Okay. So hey, uh, would you agree to an interview? Great if you'll read this book. Guess what? A lot of people don't read the book, so they're saying no for me. So you can set a condition on your yes. Um, Great. How about next week? Because a lot of times, like they say, let's do this. It doesn't have to be now, mm -hmm. right? Say, great. I'd be happy to do that. When when it works for you, this now doesn't for me. Um, a standard script that I've shared with folks is if a power player in your organization comes by and says, "Do this for me," um, my standard answer is, "Great. I've got it. You don't need to worry about it. Um, can I get it to you next Tuesday?" And it almost always works because most power players just want to know that you have it. Mm. And if you ask them, when do you want it done? What are they going to say now? Cause they're impatient and that would be proof that you had it. Right. Yeah. But if you say, yeah, I've got it. Um, how about next Tuesday? Great. I'll send you an email when it's done. And then you have to prove to them that you do that. But now you've just bought yourself at worst, you know, a couple of days at best a week and you now can fit their priority into yours without completely going off the rails. Now, yeah. if your boss comes by with a plane ticket to a week-long conference, your world's getting turned upside down, and yeah. you're going, right? Yep. <laughs> um, and that happens, and that's just when you have to, you sit down with your goals and say, great, I lost a week, um, but I, maybe I've earned some amazing equity with my higher-ups. Um, how do I rebalance the ledger? And, you know, I check in, you know, like most big businesses, they have quarterly meetings, they have returns, right? There's a rhythm to staying on track. And we can learn from that. You know, every yeah. week, every month, I check in with my goals and things happen. Your car breaks down, whatever. And those setbacks happen and you can then address them and say, great, how do I get back on track? Usually means you have to say no to some stuff in order to really say yes to that now. But if you're making progress, that usually feels like a good trade. So just sum up saying no, try yes later or yes under these conditions are two great strategies. However you tend to do that, yeah, awesome. If you'll do this, I'll do that. Or I actually sometimes will say, I'm not the best resource for that. If I point you to them, will you go to them? Hmm. Because I'm public and I'm a face of some of this. A lot of people come to me wanting to sell me stuff. I'm like, I'm not in the tech department, dude. You need to go talk to them. <laughs> yeah. And I will refer those those requests out. So those are just some quick strategies. When you start practicing and you're committed to it, you can find ways to say no without even using the word no. 
and, and certainly without offending people. They don't know that they're being said no to. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, I love how you create space with those questions, you know, back. Yeah. That's Otherwise you're reacting, right? And yeah. you're in that yeah. urgent, important mode that's very stressful to live in for any amount of time. Definitely. Yeah. We all struggle with it. <laughs> yeah, we all do. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, you want to give the listeners, you know, what you're up to lately, where they can find out more about you, and then we'll wrap the show up. Sure. Um, everything you need to know about the book is at theonething.com. Um, that's with the number one. We've got tools, resources, courses, all that fun stuff. We've got events. Like we're actually, we talk about resetting. At the end of June, we're hosting an event called Reset about getting back on track for your year. It's a nice time to, hey, we're halfway through the year. How am I doing? What should I get rid of and what should I do? And we only host a couple of those a year, but yeah. we have events. They can find out all of that. And my name, Papazan, it's so easy to Google. If they want to find me on Instagram, it's going to be easy. And uh, don't do it daily, but I do try to respond to people when they send me a private question. Hey, I'm struggling with this, and I can, if I can point them to a resource, I will. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jay. You brought so many great points out of the book from just you know just reading it and expanding on that knowledge. So, so thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for having me, Scott. Um, I love that you're such a big fan of the book. I appreciate that. Thank you. And that concludes our interview with author Jay Papazan, who co-wrote the book The One Thing with Gary Keller. I really don't even know where to start with this summary because we touched on so many amazing topics that are in the book. For instance, why the design of a book is important to the customer experience, what Jay and Gary do in meetings, where the idea came from for the one thing, how their hallmark is to think big, the domino effect, Jay's personal one thing, marriage advice, part one, two, and three of the book, the focusing question, his 411, the iceberg formula, how to begin with the end in mind with goal setting, time blocking, and how to make appointments with yourself. And what an amazing list from Jay. We want to thank him so much for being on the show today. This is a book that you're going to want in your library for the rest of your life. So you can reread it each year and revisit the great advice it has within its pages. That's it for today. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Make sure you check us out on Facebook and hit the subscribe button so you can stay up to date to our episodes. We'll see you next time.